Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to Psalm 3 uh, as we continue our uh, summer study of the Psalms. Uh, having covered Psalms 1 and 2, we now come uh, past the introduction and to, uh, to Psalm 3. And uh, from the beginning of time, humans uh, across uh, cultures, across uh, the globe, have all tried to, to wrestle with and understand the reality of suffering, the reality of sin and evil in, in the world. Uh, and every single uh, difficulty and, and trial that comes into our life, we always try and make sense of it somehow. We always try and comprehend uh, why that has taken place. And as Christians, we believe that every trial that we uh, come to face in our lives, uh, God is able to use for our good and for his glory. This is clearly stated in in Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, we believe that uh, every trial that we face uh, helps to teach us to trust God more completely. Uh, and it works to, to shape us and mold us into the image of his son. Uh, and what the New Testament states clearly and concisely in one single verse there in Romans 8.28, uh, the, the, New, the Old Testament spends entire chapters laying out a track record for us. So what, what should encourage us to believe that that single verse in Romans is the track record that we see uh, with God in the Old Testament of how he faithfully worked in the lives of his saints, most notably in the lives of, of Joseph uh, and Moses, uh, David. Uh, Esther, Job, uh, the list goes on and on of, of the track record that we see of God working faithfully, using uh, all things together for good in the lives of his people. He's able to use the, the sins of other people against us. He's able to use our own bad decisions uh, to build us up and to shape us and mold us into the image of his son. And the Bible has much to say about suffering, but with all that it has to say, the book of Psalms is unique. And what is special and unique about Psalms is we get to see the prayers of God's people crying out to God in the middle of their pain, in the middle of their trials. And we often feel that way. And and in Psalms, we get to see how other people have gone through trials and struggles in the same way that we have. We get to to see firsthand how David responded to... uh, to a civil war, to, to open rebellion by his son. We get to see how uh, the other psalmists responded when they had great struggles in their life. Uh, and the psalms existed before, before the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray. Now, the Psalter existed to teach God's people how to pray to him and praise him in the middle of their difficult circumstances. Uh, you can look at uh, the psalm book as prayer lessons, uh, as a way to uh, to sing to God, to cry out to Him in the middle of our difficult circumstances. Uh, and as we've seen in, in previous weeks, Psalms 1 and 2 uh, form the introduction to uh, this psalm book. They, they tell us what is most important, uh, that we need to, to live our lives according to God's Word. That's Psalm 1, and then we need to in our lives, pay homage to God's Son. And we saw that in Psalm 2. God's Word and God's Son are the two overarching messages of uh, this altar. And then in Psalm 3, uh, we have what is also very, very important. Even though uh, we may live according to God's Word, and even though we may live in faith uh, in God's Son, we will have tribulations in this life. We will have difficulties and, and, and struggles, and we see that immediately. Because remember, all of these psalms were arranged in a particular order. And so whenever we come to one, we have to ask, hey, why is this psalm right here, right now? This psalm, Psalm 3, is also known as a morning psalm. Now, the, the morning prayer, what a great way to begin this altar after the introduction. Uh, and it gets that name because of the line, first line in verse 5. I lay down and slept and I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. Now, this psalm is also known as a military psalm, a, a psalm of, of battle. Uh, and over and over again, because of the words that are used, uh, verse 1, we see the word foes. In verse uh, 7, we see enemies. 
verses 3 and 8 use uh, the term for victory. Uh, God is described as a shield in verse 3. Uh, and in verse 8, that word for for people, the blessings be on your people, that word can also be used to describe an army. Uh, and that may be the appropriate understanding of it here. Uh, that expression in verse 7, Arise, O Lord, is taken from a battle cry of Israel before they would march out uh, into battle. We see that in the book of Numbers. Uh, and then, uh, salvation belongs to the Lord. That sounds like a battle cry in verse 8. So we see this morning psalm, we see this this battle psalm, this military psalm, but it's also the first lament psalm that we come to. Uh, what is a lament? It, it's a it's when a, a saint cries out to God. When he comes to God in confusion, in, in disorientation, in pain, longing for deliverance from earthly circumstances, crying out to God to make sense of what is taking place in their life. And that is what we see here in Psalm 3, a, a lament of David where he is crying out to God in one of the most difficult circumstances of his life. His son is is out to kill him. He's out to take the kingdom. Running for his life, he writes this. And as we read this psalm, we, 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 we will be instructed concerning how we ought to, to pray in the middle of adversity, how we ought to respond to adversity, what we should do in the middle of our trials. And and what we're going to see here, just like we, we sang songs this morning, some of them inspired by psalms, uh, and each of those songs that we sang this morning had verses, right? There would be a verse, and then sometimes a chorus, and then another verse. And uh, and as we look at this psalm, there are verses to it. Uh, if you notice that there's there's four groupings of, of two verses each, there are four stanzas to this psalm. It was intended to be put together to music. And what we're going to see is each of these verses, except for the third verse, ends with a little tiny word named, uh, or Selah. And we're not exactly sure what that word means or how it functions, but uh, we know for certain that it was intended to, to bring a pause to the singing. Uh, it may have been to for the instruments to kind of fade out or for God's people to, to think about it and reflect about what was just said, but it was intended to mark a pause in the singing. And it's going to occur 71 times in the psalm book, uh, most often in the Psalms of David where David will write something, and then he kind of wants us to pause and reflect upon what he just said. That, hey, what I just said is worthy of more thought. Now, Robert Davidson says this about that little word. He says, it invites a response from the people gathered for worship. Whether a vocal response or some other kind of outward bodily action, we're not sure, but it for sure indicates that we are to pause and give more thought to something. So as readers of the Psalms, when we see that, we have to say, what is significant about what we just read? Well, what is David, what is the psalmist, what does God want me to, to take away from that last little statement? And we'll do that as we, as we work through these four stanzas. But let's begin by looking at the first stanza in verses 1 and 2. Read along with me, beginning in the heading. It says, A psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. What we initially see is uh, this uh, title, this superscription, and that is uh, an inspired portion of the Bible. It's not something added in by our English translators. That is in the Hebrew, and we need to pay attention to that because uh, the setting makes all the difference. Uh, David wanted us to know the background to this psalm. That's why he wrote it down. And he wanted it to be accompanied to music at some point. Uh, later on in Israel's history, this psalm would have been uh, put to music and, and played by the Levitical priests as they led Israel in corporate worship together. Uh, and I would encourage you maybe later on this week to go and read Second Samuel uh, chapters 15, 16, and 17 to, to see more about the background to this psalm. But that's how what we are supposed to bring into our understanding of it. And notice how how David begins. He begins by complaining. That's why we can call this first stanza the problems we complain about. And what word is repeated three times? Many. Lord, how many are my foes? You can kind of repeat that question 
how many are rising against me? How many are saying of my soul? David has these, these complaints to God. Lord, how many people are going to rebel? And when you're a king fleeing for your life, that's a good question to ask. How many people are going to, going to turn against me in this moment, Lord? David is just absolutely overwhelmed by all that is taking place in these brief moments. And notice David quotes his oppressors, what they are saying against him. That they are saying of his soul. They're not just speaking about him, uh, his outward body. They're speaking about his inner person. In essence, saying that he has disqualified himself from the blessing of God. They are saying that there is no salvation for him in God. That's what that means, that he's fallen out of God's favor. Uh, and that little word for no, it's better understood. It's not the normal Hebrew word for no. It's, it's non-existent. That there is no chance whatsoever that God is going to, to save David in this circumstance. That's what people are coming alongside David uh, and saying to him, that there is no chance that God will deliver him. And they are using words rather than weapons to attack and discourage him. And then we, we encounter that first Selah. That, that tiny word again to, to get us to pause and reflect upon the situation that David is in. How extremely heartbreaking it would have been, number one, if you're a king to just have to fight a civil war. But then secondly, to, to have a civil war against your son. To know that somebody is there conspiring against you, wanting to, to kill you, to harm you, to take your throne, to take your crown knowing that you're going to have to, to fight to defend those things, but you're going to have to fight against your own son. Now imagine the heartache that would have accompanied David as he left Jerusalem. David has much to complain about and to cry out to God about in this situation. There's much reason for discouragement and depression. And it's easy to see that he could have been overwhelmed by all that had taken place, and he complains about the problems that he faces. Charles Spurgeon says this, uh, he says, If all the trials which come from heaven, all the temptations which, which ascend from hell, and all the crosses which arise from earth could be mixed and pressed together, they would not make a, ter- a trial so terrible as that which is contained in this verse. It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is not help for us in God. That is indeed the greatest trial, is it not? To think that God has abandoned you, to feel left alone, that he has departed, and that there is no hope, no chance of salvation or deliverance for you. What we see here, is David complaining to God, David crying out to God in the middle of this extremely difficult circumstance. And this teaches us uh, how to complain to God. You're like, we're allowed to do that? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a right way and there's a wrong way. But God encourages us to, to complain to him, to, to lift up all of our cares and concerns to him in the right way. Well, if, there, if there's two different ways of complaining to God and one is sinful and one is righteous, how do we differentiate between the two? How do we know how we should complain to God? How, how should I do that? Well, uh, the right way is a complaint made with open hands and a prostrate heart. When we in our body and spirit are kneeling before our Creator, pouring out our heart, and at the same time affirming our faith in Him. And contrast that with the wrong way. A complaint made with a clenched fist and a proud heart. When we in our body and spirit are standing defiantly before our Creator, venting our emotions, and at the same time planning our rebellion. Saying, hey God, you got this all wrong, let me fix this. You've done wrong, let me now do right. If you turn with me uh, in your Bibles uh, to the left, uh, over to the book of Exodus, you'll see the, uh, a great example of the wrong way to complain is seen in that first generation of Israel. Uh, and just for the for the context, God has just delivered his people. He's just saved them from slavery in Egypt. And if you go to Exodus chapter 14, uh, you, you see we are, uh, the, the Israelites are about to arrive at the Red Sea. Uh, and at the Red Sea, they have a problem. They have no way to cross it, and Pharaoh and his entire army are chasing them. Now, 
There's some moments uh, in in the Old Testament, as I read it, I have to laugh to myself because there's some great one-liners if you pick them up. So look at me, uh, Exodus 14, verse 11. Uh, the, uh, the Israelites say to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? They're immediately complaining. Even though they've seen the ten plagues, even though they saw how they were spared from those ten plagues and how the plagues came upon Egypt, now they've suddenly forgotten about God and they just see the Red Sea before them and Pharaoh and his army behind them. And they're like, hey, Moses, did you bring us out here to die? We could have died in Egypt. There's good graves in Egypt. We didn't have to come all the way out here. They are immediately complaining even though they have already been delivered and are about to be delivered again. We'll just jump over one chapter to to Exodus 15, verse 22. They just got done singing about the the deliverance that God provided for them in parting the Red Sea and defeating Pharaoh. And what's the first thing that they do? Exodus 15, 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. And this becomes a a pattern in Israel. Even though that the God has provided for them on so many occasions in the past, they continue to complain uh, and grumble against him. We see this again in chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. We see it in chapter 17, verses 1 through 3. You're like, there's there's starting to be a, a pattern here. They're grumbling and complaining all the time. But God gives them water. He gives them manna. All the carbs they could want, he gives it to them. And then he gives them protein. He gives them quail. He provides for them in the middle of the desert. And we see this, this pattern of the, the first... Wrong characteristic of complaining that is sinful is going to be that it is repeated, habitual, and characteristic of your interaction with God. That you are constantly complaining and griping to Him. Secondly, their complaining is prompted by discontentment. If you you jump over uh, to Numbers. So, We saw the people of Israel arriving at Mount Sinai. They're on their way in what we read in Exodus 15, 16, and 17. They get to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, and they're there until Numbers 10. Numbers 10, they depart. And Numbers 11, guess what they're doing again? Complaining. Look at me, Numbers 11, verse 1. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was called Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. So they cried out and complained again to the Lord. And then what we see is that this was motivated by discontentment. So their complaining isn't motivated uh, by anything else other than, hey, God, you're not giving me what I want. And this is seen in verse 4 in Numbers 11. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Their complaining is motivated by discontentment. It's habitual. Thirdly, it's complaining against God. Earlier back in Exodus, Moses says, why are you complaining against me? You you know, you're really not complaining against me. You're complaining against God because he's the one who's sovereign. He's the one who is in control. Their complaining is against God, not merely directed to God. They're complaining about how God has handled a given situation and they know better. God, we like those melons. We like the fish that we ate in Egypt. We don't want this manna. We don't want the quail. A fourth characteristic of sinful complaining is that sinful complaining is the first step of rebellion. The first step of rebellion. Because again, sinful complaining, uh, you believe that God is wrong and you're going to go make it right. 
And that's what we see here in Israel. And it culminates in, in Numbers chapter 14. If you turn over just a, a page or two, their complaints about God, their habitual complaining led them to the point where they were going to overthrow Moses and go back to Egypt. Look at verse 1. It says, Then all the congregation raised a loud, a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They began to now act as if they were sovereign. They were in control. They said, God, you have a plan, but our plan is better. That sinful complaining leads to rebellion. And then fifthly, ultimately, we see that their complaining is rooted in unbelief in the promises of God. If you look in that same chapter, Numbers 14, look at verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Those are the characteristics of sinful complaining. It's habitual. It's prompted by discontentment. It is against God. It's the first step of rebellion and it is rooted in unbelief. Now, let's turn back to to Psalm 3 and see how David complains here. Because his complaint is different. Although there is one similarity. First, David's complaints are also repeated, habitual, and characteristic. If you read through the Psalms, he's, he's coming to God a whole lot to cry out to him and say, Hey God, now why is this happening? I don't understand. Can you deliver me now? Uh, but David's crying out to God is not just an interaction between he and God. It's an act of worship. He's coming in prayer, knowing that, that he is approaching God with humility. Uh, and it, his, his crying out to God is an act of worship. Secondly, it's not prompted by discontentment. It's prompted by discouragement. What, what's David feeling in verses 1 and 2? How many are the people against me? David is overwhelmed by his circumstances. And there's a, there's a difference between discouragement and discontentment. Discontentment is, I'm not happy with what I have. Discouragement is, wow, I am just overwhelmed by my circumstances. Uh, I can't believe all of this is happening. Uh, And I need to turn to the Lord in the midst of that. He's overwhelmed by his problems. He looks at all of those who are aligned against him. He says, how am I going to survive this? Thirdly, David's complaint is not against God, but it's to God. He's saying, hey, God, let me just bring my concerns to you and allow you to deal with them. I'm not saying that you've done all of this wrong. I'm just, I'm just voicing my concerns. Fourth, David's complaint is the first step of intimacy. He's not rebelling against God. This, this complaining to God is actually drawing him closer to the Lord. He's coming to the throne of grace and saying, God, I'm not sure how to make sense of all of this. I'm not sure what to do or how to respond, but Lord, teach me. Help me to understand. Act in this situation. That is what David is crying out for here. Not, he's not staging rebellion. He's pleading for intimacy. And then lastly, David's, David's prayer, his complaint is rooted in belief in the promises of God. Where the Israelites didn't believe, David is coming in absolute faith. Complaining about his circumstances, Lord, how is this happening? What's going on here? But it, he's acting in absolute faith that God will redeem the situation, that God will use it for good, that God will will work in his life for the better in this situation. We need to understand, and, and it's it's okay for us to complain to God, but we need to be sure of how we're doing it. We need to make sure we're, we're not in the first stages of rebellion, because those are two very different trajectories. One leading away from God in rebellion and one leading towards Him in intimacy. God allows us to come and lay our 
concerns before him. And that is what he wants us to do. He wants us to relate to him in prayer. And what a privilege that is to feel that we can come to him. But we must do that rightly, humbly. And and as we see David complaining in verses 1 and 2, we're going to see a progression here. We saw a progression last week in Psalm 2. Uh, as divine drama was unfolding. And in this psalm, there's going to be an unfolding of David's emotions. And even though David starts with complaining, he doesn't stay there for long. He's there for a second, and then he turns to something else. He begins to to move his eyes away from his circumstances and up upwards to heaven, where God is. And we begin to see in the second stanza, the, the God we believe in. We have the problems we complain about, and then the God we believe in. Look at me at verses 3 and 4. David says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. You know what the greatest weapon against discouragement is? Truth. The truth of God's word. When we are most discouraged and fearful, overwhelmed with emotions, what we need is... The truth of God's word. The truth about who he is and what he has done for his people. And it is these truths that that David now turns to. To say, I'm overwhelmed. I don't know how all of this is going to work out. As I look at all of these foes who are aligned against me, as I see them attacking me and saying, there's no hope for you in the Lord, David now begins to turn to the Lord that they say there's no hope in. He turns to him and look at what he says. He's going to go to his theology. David's going to proclaim four truths about God that are going to bring him hope in the middle of all of these trials that he is in. The first truth that he proclaims, that he reminds himself of, is that God is a protector of his people. He says, O Lord, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. He says, you are the one who will protect me, surround me, complete me, and defend me against everybody else. That is what David finds rest and comfort in. There's many gathered against him, but but God is the one who matters. No matter how many people gather around David, if God is the one defending him, that's all that he needs. And that's what he goes back to here. God is a protector of his people. Secondly, God is the sustainer of his people. David says, my glory. Now, let's think about this for a second. What, what does he mean, my glory? It says, God, you, oh Lord, you are a shield about me and you are my glory. That, that word for glory is the idea of, of weightiness, of importance, heaviness. And think about this. If you are a king, what is your glory? Your crown, your throne. But what has David just done? Well, he's left both of them in Jerusalem as he's had to flee for his life. See, he left his, his crown and his throne behind, the typical glory of a king. And yet, what is he saying here? Hey, I left those things behind, but my glory is still with me because his glory is who? It's not a physical man-made object. His glory is the Lord. And when the Lord is your glory, you can take your glory anywhere. <laughs> when you glory in, in who God is and how he is with you and for you, You can rest in that, no matter what you leave behind on earth. And that is what we see here. David left behind his crown and throne, but God is still with him. God is the one who sustains him. Thirdly, David says that God is a restorer of his people. He says, God is the one who lifts my head. The lifter of my head. Well, what is that talking about? Well, that, that's the idea of restoration. When uh, when Joseph is in prison uh, in in Genesis, uh, and the, these two uh, officials of Pharaoh have dreams, and, and uh, Joseph interprets those dreams, and he predicts that that those one of those men is going to be restored. This is what he says in, in Genesis forty verse thirteen. It says in three days Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand, as formerly when you were his cupbearer. What David is, is banking on here is that, that God has promised to David that he would be king. And David is banking on that promise. You can go back to it in 2 Samuel 7, the, the Davidic covenant. David is trusting in the promises of God, saying, hey, I know God will restore me. He is the lifter of my head. If I'm going to be restored, it's going to be by God's hand, not my own. 
That is what he trusts in. And then the fourth truth that he reminds himself of is that God is accessible to his people. Look at verse 4. David says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. David cried out to God, and God heard, and God responded. God answered him. The idea that that when you when you cry out to God, when you complain to him, what will happen? God will hear you. God will hear your prayer. God will hear your heart. He knows what you are going through. He is accessible to his people. And then we see that word Selah again. So what does David want us to do? He wants us to pause and reflect. So he's called us to pause and reflect first and foremost of this idea that he was in this dire situation. That people are accusing him, saying you've removed yourself from the blessing of God and there's no hope for you. But David says, no, I'm going to hope in that God. I'm going to use what I know about God to bring encouragement to my heart. Uh, In his book, Flags of Our Fathers, author James Bradley tells uh, the story of a famous photograph of Marines on Iwo Jima, uh, hoisting up the the flag. And it, it appeared initially in numerous papers, including a hometown Texas newspaper, uh, that was being looked at by a man named Ed Block. Uh, Ed Block was a, a part of the Air Force, but he was back home on leave. And as he's sitting there at the at the table, uh, his mother walks past, and she she glances at the photo, and she she points to the the the, the Marine who's at the very base of the flagpole, uh, with his hands closest to the ground. He says, "Hey, that's your brother Harlan." And Ed, he's like. Mom, I don't think that is. That, that's somebody else. Harlan wasn't even on Iwo Jima. That can't be him. But, but his mother just said, no, no. Uh, even though she couldn't see his face, even though it was just a, a side view, she's like, no, that's my boy. I know my boy. And Ed said, no, it's, it's not him. Bell was positive. His mother. And two years later, 1947, the, the man who had initially been identified as Henry Hansen, uh, as they as they went and found additional eyewitness testimony of those who were on Iwo Jima, they found uh, that it was indeed Harlan Block, and that he had died on that island. And the family was shocked; they were they were grieving. But his mother wasn't surprised. She said, "I know my boy." And that is, in essence, what David is doing here. He says, I know my God. No matter what other people are saying about him, no matter what other people are saying about me, I know my God. I know who I trust in. He is my shield. He is the one who surrounds me and upholds me. He is the one who is my glory, who restores me. He is the one I trust in. David's theology trumped his circumstances. His view of God overshadowed the earthly perspective of his trials and his problems. And his knowledge of God muted the doubts of others. What he knew to be true silenced all of the critics. And that is what, exactly what we are called to do in our trials, in our, in our difficult circumstances, when we are uh, overwhelmed. is not to trust in ourselves, not to trust in others, but to trust in God. In the truth that we know about him. And we are in despair. We need truth of God's word to give us hope and to anchor our souls in the middle of life's storms. And notice that David David had these truths in the middle of these circumstances. But how did he get them? He had them before the trials came. And that's what we have to understand. He's able to comfort himself in the middle of the trials because he had stored up Truths he had he had stored theology that he was absolutely sure of before he went into this trials, and so that's what we need to do. We need to have a stored up knowledge of God that we can make a withdrawal when the time comes. If you go to the bank and you have no money there, that's really discouraging, right? Uh, but uh, so and the same thing can be true in the middle of in the middle of trials. If we go to the the bank of our theology and we have no answers. That just fans the flame of our discouragement rather than dousing it with truth. 
We have to have saved up truths to be able to purchase the hope that only God can give to us. That's what we need. We need to act upon that knowledge in faith. And so it's not just a matter of, of knowing certain spiritual truths. It's not just an intellectual uh, understanding of something. Our Our intellectual understanding must be coupled with faith. Of, hey, I know this, I, I know this is a fact, and I wholeheartedly believe it. Even though I can't put my hands on it, even though I can't see it, I believe that it is true. Martin Luther says, Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace, so sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. That's what we have to be sure of, and th- that's the kind of faith based upon knowledge that we need if we're going to survive difficult trials, as David goes through here. We've got to know the Word. We've got to know our God. We have to know who He is and what He has done for His people. And that's an encouraging track record that He has, right? If He was able to do all of this in the life of David, is there a chance He may be able to do it with us? Absolutely. We need to take heart and encouragement in those truths, and we need to store up a knowledge of who God is in his word, in our hearts and in our minds so that we have it. And where have we already seen that in the Psalms? Look back at Psalm 1. Remember, what was the big point of Psalm 1? That the righteous, what does he do? How is how is it that he's firmly planted like a tree beside water? Well, what does he do? Psalm 1, verse 2, But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and tonight, that is how we anchor our soul to the Lord. That is how we come to know Him, and that when we have trials, we're not washed away by them. And that is ultimately what turned David's complaining into David's confidence. Where he turns and shifts from, Lord, why is this happening to, I trust in you wholeheartedly and completely. Many of us desire to have a strong faith, but our faith is always built upon our knowledge and never apart from it. You can't believe what you don't know. That's pretty simple, right? Uh, so we have to know who God is, and then we have to embrace who he is. And then remind ourselves of those truths, as David does here in the day of our trials. Next, in the third stanza, what we see is the peace we can enjoy. In verses 5 and 6. David says, I lay down and slept and woke and I awoke again. For the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. See, the result of David's theology wasn't anxiety. It wasn't uh, restlessness, but it was peace, sleep, rest. And think back to the, to the, the back story of this psalm. David leaving Jerusalem, fleeing with anybody who would be loyal to him. And he would imagine he would go to a cave. He loved to hang out in caves. When, when you're running for, a life, for your life, caves are a good place to be. So imagine you, you're, you're there and you're David. And as you, as you lay down that night, laying down is the easy part. What would be the difficult part that night? Actually sleeping. Because what, what would be rolling through your head? Am I going to survive this? Will I be killed by my own son? Am I going to have to kill my son? Am I ever going to be king again? Has God rejected me? Will I awake up in the morning? Am I going to be killed by my in my sleep by Absalom's men as they come and attack, as they found out where I am? Am I going to be killed by one of my own men? What's going to take place? All of these questions would have easily led to a sleepless night, as you can imagine. But David lay down and was able to sleep. And he awoke the next day. Uh, and, and there's an emphasis here, connecting the, the first action in the verse, that I, he lay down, I lay down, with the second action. It says, I lay down and slept. Uh, there's this, this emphasis here in the Hebrew. And then another emphasis on the fact that not only did he lay down and sleep, but he awoke the next day. Guess what? His foes hadn't overcome him. He wasn't defeated by his enemies. He wasn't overwhelmed by his trials. But who was it that had been sustaining him? David doesn't say, hey, I woke up in my own strength. Why did he wake up the next morning? 
I awoke again for because the Lord sustained me. David understands that the grace of God was sustaining him through this trial. And and he makes this this statement in verse 6. Because he knows the Lord has been sustaining me. He says, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. And I don't think that that statement of I will not be afraid is one that that has a tone of of extreme confidence or defiance. I think it's a a very humble uh, and trying to encourage his own soul because there's not a selah to that statement, right? There's There's no statement of saying, hey, pause and dwell upon that. There's no pause there after the third stanza. But I think David is is making a quiet, humble expression of faith, that he is able to sleep because uh, he rests upon the pillow of God's sovereign hand, that that he rests upon the Lord's uh, grace. He says, the only reason I'm going to wake up is because God is the one who wakes me up. And this would have been maybe the, the scariest night in David's life. See, the distance between Hebron, where Absalom had had led his rebellion, and Jerusalem is 20 miles, which is not that far. Right? That's a short day's march. If, you, if you're on uh, horseback, that's even uh, a shorter ride. And Absalom had stolen the, the hearts of the people. And this was so so sudden, so unexpected, that David could do nothing but but run for his life. What he did, he, he fled to the east, which means he would have crossed the Kidron Valley. He would have gone up and over the Mount of Olives to the temporary safety of the desert. And Second Samuel 16 says that he went weeping and barefoot with his head covered in sorrow. also says that along the way, David was loudly and openly cursed by a man named Shimei a Benjamite who had remained loyal to King Saul. And as David and his men are walking, Shimei is throwing stones at them, throwing dust at them, and he's cursing him. Listen to what he says. He says, get out. Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you. For you are a man of blood. All of this is going on. See, that that description in verse 1 of what David lays out, that wasn't an exaggeration. That is exactly what is happening here to David. Think about this. So in the middle of this extreme discouragement, How can you sleep that night? How can you do that? Your mind would be swirling, asking all of these questions, and yet David finds and experiences the peace of God. This is the peace of God spoken of in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what's the result? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is what David experienced that night. Even though all of those other things were going on, the Lord blessed him with sleep and rest because he trusted in the Lord. That is the type of rest that David experienced on that terrible night. But here's also the good news. That is the type of peace that is offered to us in Christ. When we come to him, complaining, bearing everything, right? And in everything, let your requests be made known to God with thanksgiving. And what's the result? Peace. A peace that surpasses all of our understanding. See, in our human minds, I don't understand how David slept that night. I don't understand why he would stop and sleep at all. I'd be like, no, keep going. Keep running. What are you doing? Why, why would you stop? That's my human understanding But David says, no, we can stop here for the night. God's got this. He's my shield. He's the lifter of my head. That is David's attitude in the middle of all of this. And that is the attitude that we can have if we learn to to utilize prayer. If we we learn to come to the Lord, come to the throne of grace in our time of need. That is what is promised to us. 
See, in this life, we are not promised peace from turmoil, but we are promised peace in turmoil. Not promised that everything will be smooth sailing, but we are promised that in the middle of those rough seas that God will be with us, that he will be there to sustain us. And we can know that type of peace because of the truths laid out in this final stanza. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. This final stanza, we could say, the help we can expect. David now says, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. See, David cried out in discouragement in verses 1 and 2, but now he's making a different type of cry. He cries out to God in faith, making two requests. God, arise. Stand up. Do something in this situation. And like I said, that was quoting what Moses would say uh, when the people of Israel would, would, would get up and go to battle. Numbers 10.35, Moses, his battle cry would be, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. I think that is what David is alluding to. God, stand up and act. And then he prays, God, save me. Save me, oh my God. And he's praying for deliverance from this trial. And then David speaks of his past experience. What's his past experience with, with God's deliverances? He says, God has been faithful to, to strike all his enemies on the cheek. As you break the teeth of the wicked. David is speaking in, in the past tense. Some of us might be a little shocked about what David says here, right? He says, wow, the striking on the cheek, shattering teeth. And it's even stronger in the Hebrew. There is an emphasis upon the striking and the shattering that God does on behalf of David. And we have to understand something. For, for David in this situation, what is the only hope of of salvation and deliverance is for his enemies to be removed and that's the only way that there's going to be resolution to this and when god delivers his people he does so by removing the threat against him several years ago in in 2006 over on the other side of uh idaho in, in a little town called rexburg which is just outside of idaho falls there was an eight and a half foot burmese python that was on the loose. Uh, the owners of the python lived in this large apartment complex, 57,000 square foot. And they realized that the python had escaped through a hole in the bathroom wall. Which means that that eight and a half foot snake could be anywhere inside or outside of the building. And this snake's name was, was Bessie. So a team of plumbers came in to try and find Bessie. And it took two weeks to locate her. Two weeks. And they finally found her uh, hanging out uh, in the, 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 the space between uh, the owner's house and their downstairs neighbor. But during that two weeks, you can imagine that all of the other residents of that apartment complex were, were checking under their furniture, looking in their closets, uh, not sleeping very well at night. And while the owner said that, hey, the snake is friendly, uh, everybody else was on edge. But after hearing the news that the snake was finally found, one of the residents says, yeah, we'll definitely sleep better at night. And sometimes it takes just that, that the threat is re- needs to be removed for us to truly rest and sleep. And that is... That is what David is praying here. But let's talk about this a little bit more, though. Because how, how are we to make sense of this? It seems to be contradictory, right? Jesus says for us to turn the other cheek, but here David's praying for his enemies to be struck in the cheek. right? How are we supposed to make sense of this? Well, the ESV Study Bible has a, has a great article on this, and they make four big points about uh, this type of prayer in the Psalms which is called an imprecatory prayer. It says, number one, that, that when these types of prayers are, are issued, the people who are cursed are not enemies over trivial matters. You know, David's not saying like, hey, this guy, you know, stepped on my sandal when I was in the marketplace. 
you know, may he be cursed. He's not talking about trivial matters. These are really, really significant sins. Secondly, when these prayers are made, they are using poetic language so that, so the words that are used are sometimes used, uh, hyperbole. Uh, they used ex- kind of some extravagant language to get the point across. We need to understand that this is poetry and that God doesn't necessarily do all of those things to somebody. God didn't shatter the teeth of David's enemies in this situation. Thirdly, that the curses are expressions of moral indignation, not personal vengeance. That when these types of curses or prayers are made, uh, that they're saying, Lord, there's been a violation of your standard of righteousness, not just, I am offended. That's what the psalmist is always doing. And then, Fourthly, we need to understand that in the Old Testament, personal revenge is against the law. Like there's, there's no place in the Old Testament where God says, hey, if you're upset with somebody, just go and, and execute vengeance upon them. Vengeance is always given over to who? To the Lord. In the same passage that, uh, in Leviticus where it says that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, there's a prohibition against taking revenge. So we, we see this and that, that uh, law that command against personal revenge is also repeated in the New Testament. You shall not take vengeance. So, and if I could add one thing to that list of four from the ESV Study Bible, is that it is sometimes appropriate for us to pray for the Lord to bring judgment upon somebody. We can pray for justice, but at the same time, we should also pray for repentance. That we we should say, "Hey, Lord." Either bring justice to this situation or grant this person repentance. Grab a hold of their heart and, and, and win them to your kingdom. Grant them repentance and faith. And we have to be sure that we do this, that we don't just get into these imprecatory prayers playing upon everybody. Lord, please smite the person that cut me off uh, this morning in the middle of traffic. Uh, I was going to lay my horn on them, but I'm leaving judgment to you. Uh, and th- th- we don't need to go in- into those, but beginning to pray, Lord, work in that person's heart. If you have that difficult person at work or that really difficult neighbor, don't just pray for judgment. Pray for the Lord to grant them repentance and faith. And why is that important? Because we all need to understand where were we before God gave us grace and mercy and forgiveness. We were that person in rebellion, caught up in sin, enslaved to sin, but God showed us grace and mercy. So what should we extend to them? Yeah. I know in our flesh we want to extend judgment. We want to pray for judgment. But if if others were to pray for judgment upon us, would we want that? No, we want God's mercy and grace. That is what we are called to do. So it, it, while it's it's okay to, to pray for judgment, we have to understand every single time that that is prayed for in the Psalms, judgment is left into the hands of God. It's not, okay, now God, I'm going to be the instrument of God to judge this person. No, no, no. We leave judgment into the hands of God. That is what we must remember. And then look at the way that David closes out this psalm. Verse 8. He makes a, a, a bold and final declaration. He says that salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is this is a very significant little statement here. And salvation is both the physical... Uh, and earthly deliverance, the, the rescuing of God's people from difficult circumstances, God is able to bring about that type of salvation. But God is also the only one able to bring about eternal salvation, spiritual salvation, dealing salvation being rescued from the wrath of God by trusting in Jesus as our Savior. David understands this, and he says salvation belong, belongs to the Lord, and the emphasis is only to the Lord. David says, if he's going to survive this, who is it, who's going to be responsible? God. Not David's own wisdom or ingenuity. And that's what he proclaims here. And then a parallel thought is thrown in there. Salvation belongs to the Lord and your blessing, in essence, be on your people or belongs to your people. That salvation belongs to God and God's blessing belongs to his people. What's amazing here, who are the people of God? In this, in David's setting, Israel, right? The people who's rebelling against David in this moment, Israel. So, so, so David prays all of this, and then he circles back around, and as any king should, he, his mind goes to his citizens. He says, "Lord, may your blessing be on your people." 
This is, Lord, may your will be done. And all of this, Lord, I'm complaining to you. I have confidence in you. Uh, I know salvation is completely in your hands and may your blessing be on your people. And then David calls us one more time to think about what he just said. To pause and reflect. Selah. Think about that. That is how David concludes this song. This psalm shows us how to turn to God in the middle of a trial, in the middle of being overwhelmed. It shows us that an absolute trust in God and his word will lead to triumphant living. Because salvation doesn't belong to us, it belongs to who? God. It's in his hands. So how did things work out for David in this circumstance? Well, to give you a spoiler alert, I'm like, I want you to go home and read it, but still, uh, David's delivered. Uh, and it's a deliverance that's so so subtle. It, it shifted on one little decision by Absalom. See, uh, as the king flees, Absalom comes into Jerusalem right afterwards. Uh, and then he, he takes some counselors and says, hey, what should I do? Uh, and one man, Ahithophel, who is the wisest man in the kingdom at that point, uh, God turns his counsel, uh, and I guess it's in essence, uh, leads Absalom to reject Ahithophel's counsel. Ahithophel says, hey, you need to go after David right now. While he's weak, go strike him and kill him. And if Absalom had d- done that, we wouldn't have the psalm, it would be very different. Uh, but then this other counselor, a man named Hushai, who was still secretly loyal to David, comes along and says, hey, you know what, no. You need, you need to, to wait because David is strong. He's a guy who knows how to hide out in caves and do all of this. Uh, you need to, to rally the troops here in Jerusalem before going out to David. And what that actually did is it gave David time. It gave David hope uh, to, to muster all of his uh, military strength and then go to battle against Absalom. Absalom's delay is, in essence, what saved David. A little small decision. But is God able to use that in the life of his saints? Absolutely. And ultimately, when David and Absalom's forces eventually fought, Absalom was defeated. He was killed, and 20,000 of his men also died. The Lord had given victory to David one more time. And think about that. If, If God, who is sovereign over our eternal salvation and who is also sovereign over uh, our physical deliverances, is able to to save David. He is able to save us from any small trial and from the big, the big judgment that comes with facing the Lord in the future. No matter what we are going through, salvation and victory belong to God, and we need to entrust ourselves to him. And may we be a people whose faith loudly proclaims that so that others around us when we when we're walking through a trial they say hey how are you doing that i don't understand how you can go and sleep at night in the middle of this trial and then guess what we get to do we get to give uh, an explanation of the hope that is within us we get to share the gospel with them and point them to uh, the one who is the restorer of our souls the one who is the shield about us and may we pray that the lord would increase our faith and then give us opportunities to share about our redeemer Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you are a great shield about your people. You are the one who sustains us. Lord, you are our glory. Our glory is not to be found in earthly things and possessions, but it is found in you. And Lord, we praise you and thank you for who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, help us to to store up the treasure of knowledge of who you are, that it may give us hope in our times of trial and circumstances. Lord, encourage our souls, uplift our hearts, help us to see that salvation belongs to you, both the both in our earthly circumstances and in our eternal salvation. Lord, you are sovereign. I pray that we would we would be a people who live out our faith, who make bold proclamations in the middle of trials so that the gospel is on display and that you get all of the glory, honor, and praise. 
Lord, we ask that we would be faithful witnesses, faithful ambassadors. That we might proclaim to others who you are and what you have done. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for saving us from the wrath to come by your broken body, by your shed blood. Lord, we worship and thank you. We ask that you would grow our trust in you. And in your name we pray. Amen.